0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. On Everyday Injustice, we have Miriam Krinsky. Miriam is the executive director of the group Fair and Just Prosecution, which is helping transform the criminal justice system by highlighting the roles and responsibilities of prosecutors. Welcome to the show, Miriam.
1: Thank you, happy to be part of it.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about your work with Fair and Just Prosecution?
1: Yes, absolutely. So Fair and Just Prosecution is an organization that has been around a couple of years now, um, since early 2017. And we work at this incredibly exciting moment that we find ourselves in with elected prosecutors, state and local prosecutors around the country who are reflective of a new way of thinking about our criminal justice system and are committed to moving beyond past tough on crime practices that led to the United States being an outlier in the world when it came to our rate of incarceration And embracing instead a new way of thinking about the incredibly impactful role that they have as elected prosecutors and trying to shrink the size of the justice system and bring about mechanisms to promote fairness and accountability um, for the members of their community who I think too often over past years um, have not felt that our criminal justice system has done right by them or been reflective of the values that communities want to see
0: so what do you how do you view uh the current progressive prosecution movement
1: well i think having spent myself a decade and a half as a prosecutor in the 80s and 90s and really having seen the damage that our justice system can do and the generations of people that we were bringing into the justice system the way that we were dividing and and fracturing communities and families, Um, the failures of our so-called war on drugs in our country. Um, You know, I think I came to see both the clout that prosecutors have, the extent to which they control the front door of the justice system and as gatekeepers have a lot of impact to do good, but also um, when not used uh, in the right ways to do damage, that. Having seen all of that through past decades, you know, I think I find that we um, are in this moment in time when we have a new group of leaders who have been put into office on the will of communities that want to see us do something differently and that just don't believe that we should be punishing or incarcerating our way out of societal problems such as poverty and mental illness and homelessness. And with that will and with that, greater sophistication and understanding on the part of communities in mind, we've started to see elected leaders come into office um, who want to change paradigms, who want to shrink our justice system, who are being elected in uh, places large and small, red and blue, coast to coast and everywhere in between, and who are starting to build up a critical mass of local and state prosecutors, which is really where the heartbeat of our criminal justice system lies. Um, who are trying to be- bring a different lens to their job and a different way of thinking about how we promote safer and healthier, healthier communities.
0: And so what role does your organization play in all this?
1: So we are there since they can this can very often be an incredibly lonely job. Um, and this new generation of thinkers and bold leaders, you know, can often be the lone voice in their local community or sometimes even the lone voice in their state that's tethered to and and trying to promote a different vision. So we try to provide a community of like-minded leaders um, and bring them together where they can be in the company of others who think the way they do. And given the tremendous diversity that this group of leaders that we work with is bringing to the job for the first time, you know, it's a community that we pull together that often also looks the way that they do and brings the diversity of background and race and gender to mix in a way that the national profile of elected prosecutors hasn't captured yet. Um, we try to provide them with learning opportunities. We bring them places where they can get outside of the four corners of their local jurisdiction and see what a different starting point looks like um, in Germany around rates of incarceration and how we treat juveniles and young people in Portugal, where we brought a group of them to see a different starting point around substance use disorder and drug policy. Um, We also try to connect them with some of the best thinkers in the country who are moving um, different issues and who can be of use um, as they try to chart a different pathway in their own jurisdiction. And we aim to bring their collective voice together on issues of national import. So we filed dozens of amicus briefs or done sign-on letters on issues ranging from bail reform to immigration issues, to juvenile sentencing, to the death penalty, and a host of other areas. Um, so, you know, we really try to form that collecting point around, you know, this what I think is going to become a new normal in the field of prosecution and give it a space where it can um, can flourish and can support the work of those that are moving the ball forward.
0: What do you see as the biggest barrier to change at this point?
1: Well, you know, I I think that um, what is often the biggest barrier can depend on the local landscape. Um, you know, I do think that there are certain Commonalities in um, a couple of uh, barriers that these leaders are seeing. Um, you know, there are, certainly in many jurisdictions is a status quo culture that's resistant to change. That um, whether it's within their office or whether it's um, among other criminal justice partners, you know, I think it's hard to move change, and especially in some of the larger institutions, it's you know like t- trying to turn a big shift. And um, and I think that can often pose cultural barriers or, or other resistant barriers to change. And I think there are often barriers that come from um, entities or, um, or interests that are wedded to the status quo in the old ways, sometimes even based on financial reasons, you know, those who just don't want to see the justice system smaller um, and who might have a vested interest in you know, in in the mass incarceration ramp up that we saw in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, I think we've also seen in some quarters resistance from some state associations or law enforcement groups and leaders um, who, maybe in part, don't understand or feel threatened by this new way of thinking. Um, and I think we've also seen, unfortunately, um, some resistance that's come from national leadership um, at the highest levels that. Um, Seem to be trying to return us back to a tough-on-crime era from the 80s and 90s. That you know, we know just didn't work, and um, and the data tells us just was not the right way, and did um, so much damage that one would think we know better in trying to bring us back to
0: those days. So, what does criminal justice reform look like, at least in the ideal?
1: Well, so you know. That's a great question, and I think we were asked quite often, you know, in essence, sort of what's the North Star, what's the blueprint that we're trying to see come about, and um, and and given the frequency um, of that, you know, very appropriate question, we decided a little over a year ago with some wonderful partners um, to engage in an endeavor to put together a set of what we then called 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutor that seeks to capture, you know, what what is it that we hope the world will look like in the field of prosecution as this new movement starts to continue to gain steam? And really those 21 Principles that, um, you know, thanks to some wonderful thinking from um, partners such as the Brennan Center for Justice and the Justice Collaborative, Collaborative and Emily Bazelon and students of hers at Yale um, is predicated on two pillars. One is how do we reduce incarceration? How do we shrink the system? How do we better align the United States with the rest of the world that hasn't had this love affair with prisons and jails as the go-to solution for every social ill? And secondly, a series of pillars around how do we increase fairness? How do we think about accountability, whether it's for prosecutors or law enforcement um, or other parts of the system? How do we correct past convictions that um, have been based on injustices or take a second look at past sentences that were decades long and may no longer align with where our thinking stands today? So those two set of principles and pillars, you know, I think have marked what we're seeing in these offices. Offices that are reducing the footprint of the justice system, that are ending cash bail, that are more and more refusing to criminalize substance use disorder or mental illness, that recognize that children and young adults are different and that we shouldn't be responding to them in a punitive manner that fails to account for their brain development, that recognizes that with mass incarceration, we've also had mass community supervision and we need to shrink the lengths and conditions of probation and parole. And we see offices that around the second pillar are creating conviction integrity units, are addressing past decades-long sentences, are holding police accountable to a greater measure, um, are trying to end the poverty trap of fines and fees, um, are working you know, to promote a more just system that doesn't embrace a death penalty. So. You know, those are all areas that I think where we are seeing change and where we believe, you know, the, um, the the North Star of what we should want to be trying to achieve is more and more starting to become a reality.
0: So we had uh, Rachel Barco from NYU out here last summer. And one of the interesting points she made is that the low-hanging fruit, in a lot of cases, of the criminal justice reform movement—kind of the non, 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 non-violent, non-dangerous, mm-hmm. non-sexual—has, mm-hmm. um, to some extent, depending on where you are, really been done. Um, but if we want to move mass incarceration, we have to, we have to go deeper. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I absolutely agree, and and you know I have great respect. Rachel and and she and NYU are among the partners that we've worked closely with. And that's why we're really trying in two ways to, you know, to tackle what isn't just the low hanging fruit. And and I should say as an aside, there are many places where that low hanging fruit hasn't been picked either. And so we do need to still, you know, not look away and not give up on that low hanging fruit and, um, you know, and take care of that business but um, but i do think that we're not really going to address mass incarceration unless and until we start to break down and move away from this you know sort of the illusory violent nonviolent dichotomy you know until we start to question and realize that what many would call a so-called violent offender you know is simply um, somebody perhaps struggling with mental illness who Should never have been subjected to a law enforcement response. The next thing we know, you know, they're acting out and being the violent offender by virtue of of assaultive conduct. That was simply responding to, you know, the wrong kind of de escalation. Or maybe a violent offender is a young person with a gun who lives in a community where they don't feel that they can trust law enforcement and they feel like they have to protect themselves. So, you know, we've got to tackle that so called violent nonviolence. Dichotomy. I think we've got to be willing um, to move beyond, you know, the, the triple nons and recognize that if these reforms make sense and data and research tells us they do make sense, then they should be equally applicable across the board that, you know, we still need to obviously keep our communities safer, but often, you know, the non punitive or non-carceral response. Is not going to be better for the individual, but also it's better for the community. You know, it's cheaper, it's more effective in many instances, and it it moves away from a cycle of incarceration that's to no one's benefit. And I think the other way, working with Rachel and her colleagues and others that we've been trying to address it, is to start to peel back the layers of decades-long sentences that have been imposed in the past and encourage offices to put in place processes where they can take a second look and review those, the sentences of those who have been serving time for years on end, who no longer pose any danger at all to the community, um, and who in many instances are serving sentences that we never today would impose knowing what we now know. And so, you know, I think that's another area where there is a need for critical thinking and and mechanisms for reform. And we did a convening last year around that issue. And we're very shortly in the next couple weeks, going to be putting out a policy paper um, with some pretty bold recommendations around what we see as next steps and where we believe that prosecutors need to be doing more and engaging um, in regard to those changes.
0: I'm curious about your experience as a prosecutor and then how things have changed over the last decade.
1: So, you know, I think, I mean, I prosecuted in the 80s and 90s and, you know, I was there and saw the heyday of tough on crime. And, you know, I think I started as a young lawyer um, in many ways, not really knowing better. I mean, I went into that job because um, I felt an, an abiding commitment to public service, and, um, and I, I think in many ways, you know, the job is very much about public service, but as the tough-on-crime mindset started to set in and mandatory minimums and sentencing guidelines and other escalating penalties, you know, the so-called super-predator, you know, mindset vis-a-vis our young people, you know, what I started to see were far too many patterns of... Young people of color entering the justice system, um, intergenerational cycles, um, destroying families and communities, um, and far too opportunities to have the flexibility to really do the right thing for the individual as well as the community. And you know, I left it to try um, through work that I then did around juvenile justice reform. You know, just sees windows of opportunity in the lives of young people where we really could make a difference and could put them on a better path. And, you know, what I'm seeing today, I I didn't necessarily think I would come back to the field of prosecution. And, And I have because I do see this different moment today. I do see readers who are aligning themselves with the recognition that what we did in the past just didn't work and that we've got to be smarter and that prosecutors, especially elected prosecutors, have a responsibility to use that power to try to look at what smart justice tells us and to try to deflect cases and divert cases and, um, and do no harm when they're thinking about what their job looks like, not simply move into an autopilot um, of, you know, of what otherwise the 80s and the 90s were showing us.
0: So I'm curious, uh, what does your typical day look like?
1: <laughs> well, it really depends on um, what's going on in the moment. I mean, many um, days and weeks, um, I or others on my team are, are on the road. We're you know, either on the ground at an office or, um, or pulling members of our network together to go somewhere and learn. Next week, um, a few of us are going uh, from my team to the border to you know, do some scouting in advance of A trip where we'll be taking um, uh, around, um, you know, close to 20 elected prosecutors to the border in Texas to see some of the things that have been going on there. Um, If I'm not on the road, then, you know, sometimes I'm looking at and trying to pull together the collective voice of individuals on an amicus brief, or sometimes we're researching a topical area to get out the best thinking that there is. Um, on that issue. Sometimes we're talking directly with offices to help them um, think through a new policy that they're about to put out or giving them comments on some new policies. Sometimes we're talking to experts around the country and sort of trying to serve as a little bit of a concierge service where we connect um, good thinkers out there in the country to some of the best and most inspiring leaders in prosecution around who are looking for you know those best and brightest and most innovative thinkers who can help them move things forward in their own local community
0: what are you telling uh prospective candidates for DA
1: so we are a 501c3 which means that we really don't involve ourselves on the election side um and um we you know, are intensely interested in those races and we do watch them, but um, we don't get involved um, in endorsing candidates or um, or the election work per se. Um, there have been times where candidates will call us and, you know, we are an equal opportunity responder, meaning, you know, if a candidate reaches out and they want information on something, um, we'll try to guide them to where on our website, where we have you know a wealth of materials and information about different topics. We'll often guide them to you know an issue brief that we've done, or an article that we've written, or an emphasis brief that um, that we might have put out on the topic. So um, you know, and sometimes people will call me who are perhaps interested in thinking about embarking on this journey and running for office and again while we don't involve ourselves in the election work i've still been you know more than happy to talk to prospective candidates and at least share with them my view that this is important and that we need good people um, continuing to embrace change and um, continuing to put themselves out there and be willing to stand for election. so while i don't again you know endorse candidates or um, or provide specific assistance to candidates. I'm more than willing, you know, to talk to those who are considering this again in an equal opportunity way, just to encourage, you know, the best and the brightest to think about um, a job that is becoming um, something that the community is paying more attention to for good, very good reasons, um, and something where we just really need um, good thinkers um, who are committed to a different vision the justice system than we lived through over past decades and helping to fuel that vision forward
0: and i kind of remember a few years ago the aclu put out a stat that said something like i don't i'm gonna make this number up but like 75 percent of all incumbent uh prosecutors uh went unchallenged in an election and and most of them even when they were challenged won but it seems like that's really changed in the last few cycles, or is it my imagination?
1: No, I I think you're right, and um, you know we we know that we have um, around 2,300 local prosecutors around the country, and it has been um, the you know kind of the the given in the past, essentially that you know that once in office, essentially sort of always in office that. You know, the vast majority of them, um, you know, I think um, have been in office, you know, for more than five years. I think that there were some stats I saw that, you know, 95% of incumbents were successfully elected and that over 85% of the races um, didn't even have a challenger of an incumbent, which, you know, I think it's, it's unfortunate if we can't even have a conversation around justice reform. Um, even with an excellent incumbent, there's value in the conversation occurring. Um, those stats have clearly changed. And, you know, I, we are now seeing far more elections where incumbents are being challenged, where the conversations are taking place, um, and where individuals are beating incumbents in those offices. So, you know, I, I think it is a new day. And, and I think it's by virtue of the fact that Communities are paying attention. You know, they—it's hard to find individuals in our communities who haven't been impacted. You know, either personally or through a friend or a loved one, or a work colleague or a significant other, um, having contact with the justice system. And I think for many, you know, what they've seen hasn't been what they want. And so, you know, communities are starting to. Um, to demand a different starting point. And I think that that is leading to, you know, individuals successfully unseating those who have done the job for some time. I think it's also leading to more diversity in terms of those who are assuming these positions. And, you know, I think that's a healthy thing as we, you know, come to terms with just how significant these positions are and the clout they have.
0: So the big one, I think, was you know, the election uh, a few months ago of Chase Bodine in San Francisco. Uh, what does that kind of victory uh, mean for the movement?
1: Yeah, well, I think you know, it, it, it was a fascinating race, and you know, if it, it, one wants to look for a model of robust conversation around criminal justice reform, it's hard to have found, you know, a better example than um, the intense conversation that took place um, in San Francisco. And I think, I think in wonderful ways where, you know, the community was involved, where people were following the race, they were engaged, there was, you know, uh, a, a, an interest that one wouldn't have seen in past decades in these kinds of races. Um, you know, I think it's it's also telling that, that um, there was significant investment in a different candidate by um, a police union and that, you know, in the past, some might have looked at that and said, well, you know, that, that, that means so much for Chase Boudin's chances of being able to succeed. But yet, you know, I think voters ended up um, deciding on their, on their own. You know, it wasn't just driven by, um, by that. Fiscal investment and and what it produced in terms of you know their efforts to cover the race that you know instead the voters made their own independent choice around you know what they wanted and the vision for the justice system that um, you know that that they embraced.
0: How do you see the L.A. district attorney race playing out?
1: You know, I think it's hard to imagine a more significant. Um, race uh in 2020 than that one for a number of reasons um you know la is the largest uh population center of any d race in the country um you know it's also an example of a jurisdiction where um the incumbent you know did run unopposed four years ago and you know and there wasn't much of a conversation uh around you know how are we doing and you know and how um what was la's Place in the larger statewide landscape, um, you know, I, I also think that California has been poised to move some justice reform issues, and you know, and LA hasn't always been on the um, on the same side as the community's um, interests um, in supporting reform. I think there have been you know some instances where the LA community supported you know new thinking or new initiatives or, or other changes in law. And, um, and, you know, we didn't always see that alignment in the DA's office. So, so I think it's a very significant race. And, you know, I think it's a good thing that voters are paying attention. And, um, you know, and we certainly welcome um, a, you know, a conversation and, and a focus on criminal justice reform in a county as large as LA and in a state as significant as
0: California. Are there other races that you're paying attention to this year?
1: Um, so, you know, I, I do think that there are other parts of the country um, where, you know, where we are seeing um, races that are likely to be active ones. Um, you know 2020 will be uh a time when some of the elected leaders who we believe have really done some incredible things are coming up for re-election. Um, and, you know, those counter forces that I mentioned earlier, including, you know, some counter forces who simply um, haven't um, responded well to, you know, the more diverse group of elected leaders who have come into office, um, seem poised to try to unseat those who were elected in 2016. So, you know, we know that there have been um, uh, efforts, you know, in Chicago and St. Louis and in some other places where um, where the elected, local elected um, leader um, is a black female and pushback. You know, I think in many of those instances, some of it has been race driven and some of it has been gender driven. And, and the combination of the two, you know, has made for some pretty toxic Um, situations in those jurisdictions. So, you know, certainly I think those are races that, um, that we're taking a look at and, you know, and interested in seeing where they come out and, you know, and certainly hope that decisions will be made, you know, on the track record and the merits and, you know, and the inspiring reforms that have come into place in those communities, as opposed to, you know, conversations that really are subterfuge for race. Or gender discrimination and, and animus.
0: Moving back to policy approaches, uh, what sorts of approaches do you embrace as alternatives to incarceration?
1: So, you know, I think that there are a number of areas where we really need to think even more broadly about not just inter- alternatives to incarceration, but, you know, alternatives punishment and alternatives to a criminal justice response, because once we're talking about incarceration, we're already on a criminal justice highway. And I think that there are many instances, you know, some of which I mentioned earlier, whether it's individuals who are struggling with mental illness or substance use disorder or, you know, really poverty as it manifests itself, where our country tends to respond with law enforcement and criminal justice responses rather than public health responses or social services supports or other things that can really better attend to what's going on with the individual and what's right for them and what's right for their family and community. So, you know, I think we have to think long and hard about, you know, what do we punish and what do we drive into our criminal justice system and why are we so different from other parts of the world that, um, that don't criminalize you know, substance use or, um, or mental illness or individuals you know, who are struggling with homelessness and poverty? So I think in the first instance, you know, common sense alternatives to punishment in the justice system like right, simply providing and investing more. in in education and in the skill sets that allow people to thrive and in public health supports and mental health supports that attend to the problems of individuals who are struggling with those issues, rather than using jails as our largest mental health provider, as we do in so many instances, or jails as the doorway to drug treatment, as we do in so many instances or law enforcement as the response to someone in a, in a mental health crisis, or living on the street because they have nowhere else to live. So, you know, I think as a starting point, we just have to get away from, you know, the, the presumption that punishing our way out of those sorts of things and treating, you know, our fellow members of the community um, in ways that, ignore what's going on and presume that when we put them into a revolving door of the criminal justice system, that we're somehow doing right by them or the community. You know, I think we have to move beyond that. And and then I think we start to see the right alternatives in the first instance. And in those cases that really do need to come into the justice system, then we can start to, you know, to ask ourselves, do they need to be incarcerated? You know, can there be a consequence that is more restorative for the victim in the community um, and does right by them and better attends to the needs of the individual. And if there is a need for incarceration, you know, how long is really long enough? And um, and our sentences of 30, 40, 50 life imprisonment that other countries believe are insane to impose, are those really the right starting point for this? many, many, many individuals that we incarcerate for that length of time and have for decades on
0: end. And I think you hit on an important point that the U S and I don't feel like we've gotten a really great answer on why, but the U S just incarcerates and punishes and prosecutes more people than anywhere else. And there, there's something driving that system, and I'm not sure that we have a great uh, finger on that pulse.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right, and you know, in many ways, it's, it's pretty sad to see our country. That you know, um, I mean, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I, you know, have great pride in being an American, but I think when it comes to, you know, the way we treat each other and what our criminal justice system has done it's really disheartening to see where we are and to see the number of countries who who are in a different place. And um and that's exactly why we we are a big believer in expanding the horizons of this group of elected leaders who have the resolve and the courage and the vision to do things differently. And that's why we're taking them to places like Germany to you know to see a country that You know, it has certainly had problems of its own, and that I don't think anyone would say is, you know, has been over, you know, decades the poster child for, you know, for justice, but that sure has a different starting point and a smarter approach to, you know, to when they incarcerate and for how long they incarcerate and how they treat their juveniles and young people. So, so I do think that, um, you know, there's value in trying to hit some reset buttons and ask ourselves, you know, how do we get here and how do we move to a different place? And what are the models that seem to be working better and what can we learn from them? And how do we stop presuming that the United States has had the right answer here and instead acknowledge that, you know, others are doing things dramatically differently and seem to have done pretty darn well with that. So what can we take away from that?
0: Well, that is it for our time. I wanna thank you for coming on our show.
1: Well, I'm happy to have done it and thank you for a great conversation and for you know the conversation that you generate throughout this podcast.
0: Well thank you. That was Miriam Krinsky from Fair and Just Prosecution. This has been Everyday Injustice and I am your host, David Greenwald, and I'll invite you back next week for another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.